This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences. And now I'm excited about a new natural wellness line from Plus CBD, CBD Calm and CBD Sleep. CBD Calm helps ease tension, soothe irritability, and contributes to a greater sense of contentment through a blend of Plus CBD's award-winning full-spectrum CBD, plus L-theanine, and 5-HTP. CBD Sleep aids occasional sleeplessness with CBD plus melatonin, as well as soothing magnolia bark extract and relaxing lemon balm so you can get the rest you need and wake up alert and focused. Both products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. On Intelligent Medicine, we always like to keep you abreast of uh, the latest developments uh, that may affect you as a consumer, and this is certainly one. Today, we're going to talk about compounding pharmacies, what they may mean to you as a consumer of uh, natural and alternative therapies, but also uh, that uh, their status is threatened. They are, unfortunately, in the current climate, somewhat of an endangered species, and not for good reasons. Our guest today is Dr. John Kim. Uh, he is a doctorate in pharmacy. Uh, he is a compounding pharmacist and advocate for healthy living. Uh, he is owner and pharmacist in charge of Robinson Drug and Compounding Center, and he's an expert on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy uh, and uh the way that uh, innovative uh, medicines can be deployed. That's what compounding pharmacy is all about. Also natural therapies, because they source both uh, pharmaceutical drugs and uh, natural agents. And I personally don't know what I would do without compounding pharmacies. So uh, without further ado, here's Dr. John Kim. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman. This is an honor to be on your podcast and really sharing the message of wellness and everything else that goes on with healthcare with your uh, listeners. And incidentally, uh, you too uh, have a uh, live cast show, a podcast uh, where you invite health professionals. Uh, to join you. It's on Thursday evenings. Can you give folks a, a heads up on that? Yeah, so I'm actually very active on Instagram and on Thursday evenings. I'll be skipping tonight though, but on Thursday evenings, usually I actually have uh, one of the, you know, thought leaders within the healthcare aspect of it and healthy living. And we actually break down into different topics on Thursday evenings. So last week we actually had talked about sleep hormonal balance and woman's health, which is the biggest things that are being missed. Uh, so we actually have one of the uh, sleep consultant who's also a doctor of pharmacy, uh, Dr. Zeke Medina, uh, joining us last week. So if anyone wants to follow me on Instagram, uh, my Instagram follow is dr.john.pharmd. It's P-H-A-R-M-D as in dog. 
Okay. Well, I'm not too worried about you because if you do your own podcast, you should do pretty well on this. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> right? Uh, yes. you, you've got a lot of uh, flight time on your own podcast. Okay, good stuff. Well, first of all, you know, provide us with a definition of a compounding pharmacy. I mean, how does it differ from, uh, you know, CVS and uh, Rite Aid and, and, and so on? You know, the big chain pharmacies that are on every corner here in Manhattan. Yeah, good question. So compound in itself is a art of pharmacy. If you think about how the overall manufacturing started back in the 1950s, before then, whenever a prescription comes through from a doctor, the pharmacists end up having to basically customize medication back, uh, based on the doctor's orders. So in terms of mixing different chemicals, powders, liquids, even alcohol spirits at that point in time were allowed by the pharmacist to be done. And that's including, you know, kind of interesting histories like in, including cannabis extracts where mm -hmm. pharmacists were actually making ca cannabis extracts of sativa or indica and utilizing it for purpose of pain treatment and everything else. So really the compounding aspect of it, yes, it is a renewed interest within the pharmacy world, but it is an art that's always been with us. And because of manufacturing process that went on uh, and, you know, Pfizer, Mark and all these, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies being really being innovative in terms of providing these set doses forms, well, 70% of the population will be able to tolerate it, but the rest of the 30% will not be able to. So those 30%, how are we going to be taking care of that? Well, that's where the compounding aspect comes in, that we're able to customize medication for the patient's needs, where if there's a certain allergens or certain fillers that the patients are not able to uh, take, we take those out and we could make into certain doses forms that patients could take. So capsules, liquids, suspensions, including transdermal uh, delivery of medications, which was very, very innovative. And at the same time, now we're getting much more complex when in our clinical practice. So customized pain therapy to provide topical a pain medication to the skin. So topical ketamine is another example that mm -hmm. patient could use for neuropathy. Uh, we are big on using low-dose naltrexone mm -hmm. to treat pain as well as autoimmune disorders, which is not available by the manufacturers, as well as we do a lot of therapies in dealing with Lyme's and as well as autism, right? So those patients are needing extra, extra care in dealing with some of the hypoallergenic products, uh, certain fillers cannot be utilized, and other things, including um, injectables that we're able to customize for patients. The biggest thing that we are, you know, helping nowadays is hormone replacement therapies, especially for patients going through menopause or even men going through angiopause, where the overall uh, therapy of hormone can be all customized because, as you know, Doc, not everyone is the same, right? So everything has to be customized based on mm -hmm. that. And that's where the overall, the art of compounding comes into, into practice. And we are making a big difference at this point in time. Indeed. And, uh, you know, that's why uh, traditionally the mortar and pestle was the symbol of uh, pharmacists. They literally would uh, put together medication uh, from raw materials in the back room. And that is kind of a lost art these days because as pills come in big bulk to uh, essentially uh, drug distributors uh, in conventional yes. pharmacies, it, it is a sort of a one-size-fits-all approach usually. And, and many of our sensitive patients, uh, patients with unique needs, patients perhaps who need uh, uh, pills that are gluten-free or free of uh, coloring and additives or maybe uh, topical agents, uh, uh, 
that are free of parabens, for example. Uh, these are things that you can deliver, right? Absolutely. That's one of the things that we could definitely do. And then there are some other unique dosage forms like rapid dissolving tablets for, let's just say, patients not able to swallow uh, their regular tablets they're taking. Or uh, a good example just before I mentioned about is transdermal delivery of medication could be absorbed uh, through the skin. Mm -hmm. So especially for hospice patients, that's where it could be very, very useful for that. Um, and as well as being very innovative in terms of other ways. So we deal with patients dealing with endometriosis or pelvic floor disorder, very difficult to uh, handle, but also there are not many drugs out there by the pharmaceutical companies to actually help to address these things. So we make uh, diazepam suppositories, adding in other um, you know, pain medication agents in there, also muscle relaxants mm -hmm. adding in. So it's a very unique approach in, that, in doing so. So one of the things I recommend, I tell patients as well as clinicians out there, is that compounding pharmacists are problem solvers that we are working with within a triad relationship with doctors and patients and the pharmacy together to bring forth a better solution for patients' needs. Indeed. And, you know, uh, there really is a collaborative relationship between uh, the doctors and uh, the compounding pharmacists. And, of course, the patients, too, are involved. And, it, you know, I, I frequently will get on the phone with a compounding pharmacy and say, okay, well, um, this patient has certain needs, uh, this patient doesn't tolerate such and such, uh, or I, I may just ask an innovative compounding pharmacist, well, you know, what do you have uh, as a topical pain reliever for, say, a patient with shingles? And they'll give me several options. And then I can select among the options. It's actually educational for me because they've done a real deep dive on all the possible permutations of uh, various medications. Absolutely. So that that's where our overall art of compounding comes into practice. And it's not even just that. I, I you know, one thing that I got into compounding very early on, uh, right out of you know my pharmacy uh, education, is that. I saw a big difference in patients' lives and making that impact because I'm able to think outside the box. At the same time, we're utilizing pharmaceutical science along with clinical aspect that we're dealing with on a daily basis. At the same time, we're becoming problem solvers. And that's where the overall um, missing piece actually occurs within pharmacy these days. If you look at chain pharmacies where you're filling hundreds and thousands of prescriptions on a weekly basis, you just don't have the necessary time to think about the patient's clinical aspect, except for just counting out pills and taking it out. I found that very boring early part it's of my not career. It's creative, yeah. You know, it's not. Uh, and so that's why I got into uh, this aspect of it. And, and the interesting part also is that after I finished my pharmacy career, I got into functional medicine uh, in training uh, with some of the top doctors in the United States. And in utilizing functional medicine, it marries very well with compounding because we, you know, as functional medicine goes, you look at the root cause of the disease, but also in a thinking asada approach kind of mentality that very uh, much goes hand to hand with compounding pharmacies. So uh, it's been very, very fun. It's very personalized. So, okay, sounds, yes. sounds great. I mean, look, uh, this is, uh, you know, how can you how can you go wrong with this type of approach? Well, uh, the U.S. government and regulatory agencies, and uh, perhaps uh, with some uh, some uh, uh, support 
and encouragement from big pharma who make essentially competing drugs. You know, they're making a Premarin when you're making a topical uh, uh, estrogen progesterone formulations. Uh, they're uh, trying to clamp down on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and on other aspects of uh, compounding and, and putting a lot of restrictions on compounding pharmacies. That's a, you, you basically hit it right on the head right now that the overall challenge at this point in time is that why is the U.S. government getting involved in patient access to medications that's really saving their lives and making their quality of life better? It's not that we're even hurting patients or anything else. It's that the overall control, is, which is beyond their scope of practice in that sense, and getting involved. And, and right now, especially for hormone replacement therapy, FDA is trying to shut compounded hormone therapies from patients. And their, they, their belief is that overall, what's available right now by the, by the manufacturers, Big Pharma, is enough for patients to get the needs that they uh, require. And that unless you're allergic to certain medications that the patients uh, might not be able to use from the Big Pharma products, the compounding is something that you could do. But also they clamping on what type of dosage forms that the pharmacy is able to utilize, which also a problem as well, right? Because in terms of, just give you an example for progesterone, for instance, depending on the patient's symptoms as well as um, the overall issue with adrenal insufficiency, let's just call it, you know, utilizing capsule versus a topical would be very, very different uses because um, you're taking progesterone capsule would end up having to tackle a lot of issues dealing with anxiety and, and insomnia for female patients mm -hmm. going through menopause. Right. It, these are things that we have to discuss about and customize the therapy based on that. And as well as milligram is completely different between patients who is thinner body frame versus persons a little bigger. You know, all those things come into play, but the big pharma world does not do that. And the, the things that you have to relate to the uh, regulators, especially the FDA, they just don't have the complexity to understand that aspect of it. And it's really making a, a, a you know, wrong decision right now to clamp down on these things and then really affecting patients' lives. And you talk about thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients who are actually doing these things, even millions probably. Mm -hmm. and, and they would scream bloody murder if their access were cut off to uh, some of these uh, life-sustaining therapies. Uh, but it's the contention of uh, the FDA that when it comes to, for example, hormones, that each and every yes. hormone formulation uh, should be tested. And so in theory, you have an infinity of possibilities. You can compound uh, estrogen uh, innumerable ways and you can, you can add to it uh, progesterone or you can add DHEA or testosterone. So the permutations are uh, infinite. And it's their contention that, well, you know, uh, standardized drugs, they've, they've been tested in, in one or two, perhaps three dosage forms. Uh, they've gone through uh, literally, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of testing and then the application fees before FDA. And they're saying that you guys kind of short circuit that, you know, that you're, you're out there with your mortar and pestle and you're making right. up, uh, you know, stuff that in essence has not been tested. So that's, that's their argument. What say you? So, you know, if, well, 
before we, we actually answer that, I know you're in New York because <laughs> you have the yeah, uh, background. Fire, a siren going back. Yeah. And that's and that's on the 21st floor, and I bought expensive, uh, supposedly soundproof windows. So there you go. Uh, that's that's interesting. So, right. I mean, I'm not that far away from you anyway. So, um, anyways, going back to the question, you know, in order for us to go through the entire regulatory process that the FDA is requiring for big pharma, it doesn't account into this practice right now because – one is all individually made to begin with. That's one. The second matter is that in order for us to go through that entire investigational, so IND process, exactly. what they're talk, mm-hmm. talking about, yep. it's going to be impossible for patients, right? It's it's a it would be prohibitive. It would be prohibitive. Prohibitive is one thing, but then to have a regulator to say that they don't know what they're talking about. It just they don't know what the patient overall what they're going through. The overall. A overall um, availability of the medication to get to them in the right standard time. So those are things that cannot be done. And and in terms of scope of our practice, in terms of what the pharmacist is supposed to do, this is within the scope of our practice. We've had the actual education in terms of doing the good manufacturing practice of compounding. We get the chemicals, um, pharmaceutical grade chemicals, basically, and they are third-party tested, and we have all these things as a documentation to say that we're getting a quality products and ingredients to make the doses forms mm-hmm. that the patient needs. Another thing that we do also is that depending on the amount of batches, so what batches require is that if we actually have, let's just say, 10 patients taking the same medication, we're not going to just one, make one, one for the one patient. We're making quite a bit of uh, other quantities that the, we might be using. If that's the case, we send it out for testing, a third-party testing to ensure that the product that we're actually making, it is a uh, right potency and there's no other uh, potential fillers, especially when you're talking about sterile compounding. We have to get these things to be tested by the third-party company for sterility, potency, mm-hmm. and as well as possible endotoxin issues. Right. Um, so, you know, we do all these things, and the science right now is already available for compounding pharmacies to do. So in terms of patient safety, we are in the foremost. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the overall argument of that, and if you look at the amount of potential issues that goes on with big pharma, they're even greater issues yeah. in that yeah. sense, right? Yeah. right? And if you look at five- millions of people sometimes, and then mm-hmm. sourcing materials sometimes from China, the many celebrated cases of how uh, commonly used medications, I think Zantac was one of them, over-the-counter Zantac was a whole bunch of lots were recalled because uh, the raw materials were contaminated. Yeah. I mean, so those are things that are happening constantly, but they're not clamping down on the actual manufacturing process. They're actually clamping down on the little guys, mm-hmm. the little guys who's trying to make the patients' lives better. And we are doing all we can based on the scope of practice that's already set by the state. Individual states end up having to set the regulatory process of what how the pharmacist is supposed to practice. So this is the where this is where the overall the big. Um, the big government <laughs> end up having to get involved in trying to control all aspects of patients' lives. And, no, to you know, supersede be, the local control with a very more, more extensive federal regulations. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, so, and it becomes a problem, too. And, and some of this uh, actually is, is partly blowback from a, a very celebrated case that I think it was in uh, Massachusetts where uh, there was a, a compounding pharmacy. It really wasn't a compounding pharmacy. It was almost like kind of a, a chop shop for drugs. 
where they had some compounding, but they seemed to, you know, manufacture just a whole lot of stuff that they shipped out to drugstores, uh, where they had substandard, uh, they had substandard uh, manufacturing uh, procedures, and some of their injectables were contaminated, and injectables sometimes were uh, injected into patients, and they developed uh, disseminated uh, fungal infections. Uh, that, unfortunately, uh, was uh, a pretext for the FDA to step in and say, oh, my God, you know, what's going on in these compounding pharmacies? Right. So that is a very unfortunate case that actually occurred back in 2012. It was uh, done by New England Compounding Pharmacy, where they were actually shipping out tainted uh, vials of steroid injection for inter- intrathecal injection. Into the spine. Resulted so that, that's in like worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario, right? So, uh, and, you know, 60 patients, unfortunately, died from a tainted vial of, uh, you know, a fungal um, contaminated vials, and these patients end up having to die from fungal meningitis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a very much a case that should be looked into. However, the FDA ended up having to knew about this particular case. They had cited several times. The state board of pharmacy knew about it as well, but they didn't step in, hmm. right? So these these are things that and and when you don't do these things, and then now they're very proactive in terms of clamping down on everything else that goes on. There's always a rogue player in any type of profession you go into. There's always a rogue player within the um, you know medical practice. There's always going on from the financial realm. Well, that happens in the pharmacy as well. But those are the anomalies, one. But then also, if that actually happens, yes, yeah, set the regulation, but just don't clamp on the patient access in terms of what's allowable to be done. Mm-hmm. And that's always a problem as well. But in terms of the overall access for hormone replacement therapy, this is one of the things that the FDA trying to clamp on for many, many years, especially back in 2007 when Senator Ted Kennedy was in the office. They were trying to get rid of estriol, um, one of the you know third estrogen that's mm-hmm. really making a huge difference in patients' uh, lives in terms of you know menopausal therapy. You know, those are things that was really needed. But because that the FDA found that as being an investigational ingredient, they're trying to clamp it down from being available. Even though estriol is counted as being one of the rated as being um, a safe and effective as one. And second thing is that the USP pharmacopoeia, so the standard body of pharmacy practice, already recognized that particular drug as being safe and effective. And FDA says otherwise. And why is the lawmakers getting involved in that sense of that? So th- this is the biggest thing that um, the Washington <laughs> uh, players are trying to, you know, really ruin the access of medications that the patients really needs. And that should not be the case. I, I think there's another element to uh, the Estriol story and the story of many other uh, natural agents because uh, they're, in effect, competing with synthetic agents and the economics of pharmaceutical industry uh, dictate that it's better to have a synthetic patentable ingredient, in other words, a test tube ingredient uh, versus a natural ingredient. Because if you do millions and millions of dollars of research on a natural ingredient, you can't really patent nature. Uh, and therefore, uh, it's more profitable because you can sustain patent exclusivity on a synthetic drug, a drug, for example, like uh, uh, Premarin, uh, which is uh, a conjugated artificial estrogen uh, derived from horse urine. That's actually how it's yep. made. That's why it's called 
Marin, pregnant mare's urine, uh, versus estriol, which is bioidentical. It really is natural. So there's there's a medical economics uh, basis for this, too. And it, it turns out that estriol is under investigation by some companies uh, who want to get um, a use patent on it for applications that are very varied. I think one was on uh, treatment of uh, multiple sclerosis, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yep, that's correct. You know, so, so that they can say, oh, now we have FDA approval to sell this for MS. Uh, that would mean uh, you would be competing, offering uh, a much less costly alternative uh, to a drug that could have its price inflated by, you know, 50-fold. Yes. Okay, I think I stated the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that's the biggest problem with how the big pharma end up having to come through. You know, they have they spend millions of dollars and um, almost billions actually in utilizing lobby groups uh, to go in and immediately set send the tone in terms of what they're doing. I mean, it's really sickening in terms of how the overall government we think that is for the people. It's not the case. It's actually for the corporate heads. And what they think that is uh, how they should be controlling the overall market and what's available. And, you know, sometimes one thing that really upsets me these days is how overall pandemic actually has been handled in terms of what other potential life-saving therapies that could be utilized for potential you know, treatment for COVID purposes, especially like ivermectin right now, mm -hmm. right? That's where the very, overall very FDA is coming. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah. it's, it's almost like uh, – if many pharmacies will not uh, fulfill a prescription, a prescription written by a duly licensed physician, uh, you bring it to a pharmacy and the pharmacy will say, no, we don't we don't uh, fill that prescription anymore. And, you know, people yeah. need options. We need an all of the above approach. All right. This is a good point which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. We're going to do a deeper dive on the subject of compounding pharmacies. We're talking to compounding pharmacist extraordinaire, Dr. John Kim. Uh, he's the owner and pharmacist in charge of Robinson Drug and Compounding Center. Uh, he, too, has a podcast. He calls it a, a live cast on Instagram. And uh, we're going to continue on this subject in just a moment. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is Intelligent Medicine.